I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Cons Minds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 50, we read A Time to Build by Yuval Levin, published in 2020. And Yuval Levin is joining us today. He is the uh, Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and the Editor of National Affairs. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. So let's let's get down to the book. You write that America is living through a crisis. So what is that crisis, briefly, as you see it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're uh, chatting now in the midst of uh, a more emergent crisis, uh, a public <laughs> health crisis. But uh, w- what I'm describing in the book is something more like a social crisis, uh, one that we can see in everything from uh, vicious partisan polarization in our politics to all kinds of rampant resentments in the culture war on a variety of issues that seem to divide us uh, into two. We see it even in a lot of people's private lives in our society in forms of alienation and isolation and despair that have sent suicide rates climbing in recent years and have driven an epidemic of opioid abuse. These are dysfunctions that are different from each other, but that seem to have some common roots. And when you think about those common roots, um, you start to really think about the character of society. You know, our first inclination is to think about some familiar measures of well-being, like how's the economy doing, uh, how, what's people's health like. And again, uh, putting aside the immediate social health, uh, public health crisis we're dealing with, um, you might have said in the last few years the economy has been getting a lot better um, and Americans are safe and healthy on the whole. Uh, and so those usual measures don't really explain uh, people's attitude, the mood of our society. And to think about what does explain that mood, we have to think about something less individual and less material. We have to think about the ways in which we're connected to one another, the the health of uh, of those modes of connecting and living together, so that rather than think of our society as a big, huge open space where people are having trouble linking hands, and so talking in terms of just... uh, you know, tearing down walls or building bridges or casting unifying visions, all those things are valuable. But I think they still don't get at something really crucial, which is that what we need in American life is not just forms of connectedness, but a real structure, a structure of being together, a way to give shape and purpose and concrete meaning and identity to the things that we do together. And if American life is a big open space, it's not a space that's filled with individuals trying to connect. It's a space filled with those structures of social life, a space filled with institutions. And in a sense, what we're living through is a crisis of institutions and institutional failure. The book tries to think about just what that means. How do we think about institutions? What is it uh, that we've been uh, losing as we've lost trust in them? And how might it be rebuilt in ways that could help us address that social crisis? Yeah, you know, we we talk a lot about institutions on this podcast, and I think a lot of conservative thinkers are writing about them these days. I thought your book really got at why they're so important in a specific way that I think we haven't talked about before. And you talk a lot about formation. How would you care Mm -hmm. to discuss that? Yeah. 
you know, there are a lot of ways to think about what an institution is. Uh, and obviously in, uh, in, in the academic literature around this stuff, there are just endless definitions. But what I offer in the book is, is a straightforward definition that tries to make use of some of that work, but also speak to contemporary problems. And I define institutions as the durable forms of our common life, the shapes, the structures of what we do together. Institutions mean that we're not just clumps of people, we're groups of people directed to a particular end, uh, a particular ideal or goal, and shaped to pursue that goal. So each of our institutions pursues an important social end, maybe educating children or feeding the poor or producing a good or a product or governing in some way, enforcing the law or making the law. Um, but as it does that, each of those institutions also forms the people in it to have a certain kind of character, a certain way of pursuing that good, uh, and a particular sort of integrity in doing that. And this gets at the, at the problem we find when we talk about people losing trust in institutions. What it really means, I think, to trust an institution is, first, of, co of course, to believe that it's competent, that it carries out its, its work effectively. But it is also to believe that, it, that the institution is formative, that it shapes the people in it to be trustworthy, that it endows them with an ethic that makes them reliable. So that if we think about a professional institution, we might think that that's an institution that makes people we can trust in a particular realm of life. You know, there's such a thing in the world as an accountant, say, and an accountant does certain things and doesn't do other things um, mm -hmm. and has a particular character that we trust in certain circumstances. A lot of the professions work that way. You could say we trust uh, a political institution if it seems to have an idea of the public interest at its core and to shape men and women within it to pursue that uh, ideal. We could say the same about an educational institution uh, and about all kinds of institutions in our society. It's, it's very important that they are forms of social life and therefore that they are formative. They shape us, they shape our souls. And our loss of trust in institutions has a lot to do with a sense that they're failing to do that, that they don't shape us in the way they ought to. And so what do you trace the, the cause of that? I mean, yeah, I mean, there are a couple of ways to, to think about what it means that our institutions aren't formative in the way that we would like. Um, you know, one way in which that can happen is a simple, straightforward kind of corruption, right? Institutions that say they are formative, that say we should trust them, but that in fact end up uh, protecting misbehavior. So when a bank cheats its customers, when a, a member of the clergy abuses a child, that's corruption, that's abuse of power. And it's certainly one reason why we lose our trust in institutions. But that's not new. That's always been part of the human experience. And uh, that's always mm -hmm. been a reason to have some suspicion about institutions. What is new and what I think helps explain some of the more intense loss of trust in institutions in our time is a different kind of loss of trust, where rather than just think that institutions claim to be formative but aren't, what we're finding is that a lot of the institutions of our society aren't really claiming to be formative anymore. They don't say that they are molds of our character that shape us. They offer themselves up as platforms, and especially as platforms for performance, for elevating the people inside them and letting them be seen um, and giving them more of a chance to build their personal brand rather than turning them into a particular kind of human person. And a lot of the institutions that we've been losing trust in in government, in the business world, uh, in education, in the professions, are institutions that have gone through this transformation 
where they now basically function as platforms for the people in them rather than as formative of those people. You can look at Congress. A lot of members of Congress now basically run for office in order to have a better time slot on cable news or talk radio or to build a bigger social media following, build their own brand. Um, you see that in the presidency at this point, of course, clearly, which is a very performative kind of job now. Mm. Um, but you see it in the professions, you see it in journalism, you see it in the academy. And it becomes much harder to trust an institution when it's no longer pretending to form men and women we can trust, but is instead offering a platform for people. And I would also say that the, the institutions that are exceptions to this trend that we do still trust tend to be ones that are very explicitly formative. The military is the foremost example of an institution that the public has not lost confidence in. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that the military plainly does form and transform the people in it. Um, and we can see that and we trust that. Yeah, I think I think definitely, I mean, where, where everything else has sort of fallen off since the 70s, the military's improved itself since the, the post-Vietnam era and really tried to get over that loss of faith people had in it, you know, from the Vietnam experience. But, yeah, I think that's right. And it's not just that it's, that it's good at protecting the country, which it certainly yeah. is. But it is really about, for, you know, when someone tells you that they, uh, that they went to Harvard, you might think that could be a smart person. But Harvard didn't make them smart. It chose them because they somehow proved that to, to the university. When someone tells you that they went to the Naval Academy, you tend to think that's a serious person. And precisely yes. because the Navy made them so. It is really about yeah. being formative. Those are some great insights. I, I wondered while I was reading, to what extent do you think the, the cause runs in in both directions. That is to say, members of Congress view the their position as members of Congress as a, as a platform to perform. I think it's also the case, and I wonder what you think, that that's what they're rewarded for. And it's almost, you know, that's what the constituents in some ways are asking for. Maybe maybe not, in, you know, in the middle, but certainly uh, when it comes to the, the activists and the, the primary yeah. voters and so forth. It's, it's almost like that's what they want. And so and members of Congress are rewarded for it. And you see the cause moving in both directions. I want to think what you think about that. I think there's no doubt that that's true. What we've seen is a kind of transformation of our expectation of institutions so that they're not doing this against our will. They're doing it in part because it's, it's part of a larger social transformation in this direction. And you certainly see that in politics. I mean, I, I think you're quite right that for a member of Congress now, you know, politicians are ambitious. They always have been. They have not become less ambitious. It's just that their ambition now flows through channels that are much more performative. It's, it's about becoming a big figure in, our, in, in the theater of our national politics, which is essentially performative and cultural more than it is about public policy and governing. And so ambitious younger members in particular tend to understand what Congress offers them as a, as a kind of platform. If you, if you attend a congressional committee hearing now, you basically find a bunch of individuals producing YouTube clips to use later. They're not engaged mm -hmm. with one another. They understand themselves to be on a stage performing. I think there have been some changes in the structure and, and design of congressional work over the years that have encouraged this. The explosion of transparency, which began for very good reasons, but I think it's gone much further than it should have, so that now there are no private deliberative spaces in Congress. There are really mm -hmm. only public performative spaces. It's almost the case that the only place to talk in private is the leadership offices, uh, you know, at midnight before a government shuts down. 
And that's where all the decisions are made because you can't really bargain and negotiate in public. Um, this work can't be performative. And the, the transformation or the deformation of the institution uh, definitely flows in both directions, no question there. I think that's a crucial insight about, about Congress. And, and I've heard you say this before, and I really enjoyed your, your thoughts on this in the book, that there really are no enclosed bases. There are no chambers left. I mean, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive that, that transparency and shining a light on, on the processes is, actually has a, a, a negative effect. And how do, you, how do you deal with that, though? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a matter of degree, right? There, we do need transparency, especially in a public institution. There has to be some way to hold people accountable and to know what they're doing in your name. But at the same time, there also have to be some private deliberative spaces where members are able to negotiate. Ultimately, the work of Congress is the work of negotiation, the purpose of the institution is precisely to allow people with differing views uh, to reach some accommodation. And that means that there has to be bargaining. And bargaining cannot happen in public. If you see people bargaining in public, you're watching a performance. That's not the real deal making. And so there has to be some balance between these things. I mean, I, I do think that there is room for much more closed door committee work alongside public committee hearings. Um, and there's a need for more spaces for members to deliberate with one another. And then everything's public, right? Legislation is public. What happens on the floor can be public. But there have got to be spaces for members to talk and negotiate, because otherwise Congress just simply can't function. I just think it's a matter of realizing that even good things are only good up to a point, and that there is such a thing as too much transparency. When everything in Congress is transparent, then the institution has no inner life and it becomes impossible for it to function. And I do think that's been part of the weakening of the Congress over the last few decades, which has then driven the, the overstrength of the executive and the, and the judiciary. I think, as, yeah, I, I thought that part of the book was also just w well done. I mean, I remember thinking the same thing during the, the uh, Kavanaugh confirmation hearings that nobody in that room was asking a question that he wanted an answer to. They all were, you know, making their speeches and, and either praising the nominee or screaming at him. And, and that, and no new information was learned. And I, I guess it's sort of like a negotiation. You, you can't, if you're concerned about how you look on camera, you can't ask an honest question because you might be, you might be proven wrong. You know? If you talk to members who are on the intelligence committees, especially the Senate intelligence committee, they'll tell you that that's their favorite part of the job. And it's, it's yeah. a lot of it is because those meetings are not public and they just get to know each other. They get to work together and they can ask questions. As you say, you, you can admit you don't know something, which is very hard mm -hmm. to do in public for a politician. Um, and, you know, I think it's very important that they have more opportunities to do that so they can actually do their, their core job. You, you, um, you said something similar about the political parties themselves and how open the process has become to nominate you know, either for president or for any of the legislative offices. Do you, do you think it's the same thing at work here? Yeah, it's a related argument, right? Institutions have to have an inner life. There has to be an inside as well as an outside. And the political parties have a very important role to play in our system. They help to channel partisanship and ultimately, ironically, maybe to moderate partisanship. The reason we have such intense partisanship now is actually because we have weak parties, not strong parties. A strong national party has an, has an interest in moderating the views of its members because it has to build a broad coalition nationwide 
It has to win votes both in the Deep South and in the Upper Northwest, and that means that it will tend to appeal to a broader uh, swath of the electorate. But as the parties have become weaker and some outside groups have become stronger, uh, the, the, the intense incentives now are to speak to those marginal voters at the edges of the parties rather than the marginal voters at the center of our politics. And that has meant that the parties themselves have really become platforms. They've become just a place where you can stand as an individual and make your appeal. And they, they increasingly attract people who are going to be good at that. And so they become platforms for narcissists. They don't control their own processes. The parties, you know, are private organizations. They're not public institutions. Um, and our democracy happens uh, between the parties, but not within the parties. And mm -hmm. they've become so transparent now that they really don't serve much of a purpose. And our politics has been pretty badly deformed as a result of that. Couldn't agree more with that. So when we're talking about institutions, can, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Because I think, you know, sometimes we might think of institutions in terms of some official organization, but you think much broader than that, right? Give it That's right. You know, as I say, there, there are a lot of ways to define the term, but when we think about an institution as a, when we think about institutions as the forms of our common life, some of these are organizations, right? They're, they're formally structured. They might have a corporate uh, structure, so a company or uh, a university or a hospital um, is an institution. Some of them are just as important in terms of, uh, of, of forming us, but they're not, they're not organizations and they're not corporate in the same way. The family is an institution. It's the first and foremost institution of any society. You can talk about a profession as an institution. You can talk about uh, you know, the, the, a particular tradition as an institution, the rule of law as an institution. What matters about them is, first of all, that they're durable. They, they, they stand the test of time and they change gradually. They evolve over time so that the shape they take helps to structure our understanding of what's possible and achievable in our society's life. And then secondly, that they are forms in this way, that they really, they give people a place, a role, a relationship to others in the performance of an important task. And so that is certainly a very broad term. Institution is a very general concept, but I think to understand it that way helps us to see that what we're living through now might be best understood as a deformation, a loss of proper form. And that that makes it hard for us to know what our place is, what our relationship is to others. It's why the kind of social crisis we're living through expresses itself as isolation, alienation, a lack of belonging, a sense that things aren't there for you, but for other people. Um, that suggests a weakening of institutions. And it suggests that in order to recover from this kind of social crisis, we have to recover something of the strength of our core institutions. Yeah, yeah you, you quoted Jose Ortega y Gasset saying that people do not come together to be together. They come together to do something together. I thought that really nailed what's part of the problem of institutions that are falling apart is that people look at them and they maybe they see the corruption like some of the examples you mentioned, but they also see, well, what am I even getting out of it? What, yeah. I mean, what, what, what is coming here that isn't coming from a check from the government? I think that's really true, and it points to a concern that conservatives have raised about this for a long time, which is that as some of our core institutions, especially those of family, community, religion, civil society, 
lose their roles, lose their ability to serve a purpose uh, in the lives of individuals, it becomes much harder for them to draw people into themselves and to have us understand ourselves through them, affiliate with other people through them. People don't just come together because they want to be around other people. If you just say, well, we're all too isolated. Let's have a meeting every week. I'm, I don't know if I'm showing up to that meeting because what's the yeah. point? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you say, here's a way to improve your life. Here's something that matters to you and we're going to do it together. You're much more likely to show up to that meeting. You're much more likely to play a part if the institution you're part of is doing something worthwhile in society. So that there is a way that uh, as government has grown over the past century, it has displaced some of these core civil society institutions, leaving them with less to do and therefore with less of an ability to draw people together. We're more lonely because we're not part of them, but we're not part of them because they are not as important as they used to be. So that to recover from that requires us to invest some of these institutions with some significance, with power and authority. That can mean trying to help social policy flow through them a little more. Uh, And conservatives have tried to do that for a long time in American politics. It can mean building new institutions to meet new needs that are not otherwise being met. But uh, the, the growth of government and in some ways also the reach of the market have certainly meant that some of these traditional institutions have been displaced. And that has a lot to do with why we don't see them uh, as, as so central to defining our identity as we might have before. Well, to build on that, it, I, I, this uh, question was raised in my mind as well. I mean, you've just described the, a, a good institution or a, a functioning institution is one that gives some sort of meaning. It matters. You know, we, we don't just uh, show up for a, a meeting to sit in a circle, but because we're trying to build or create or move in a direction together. And I think you make this point that what we need is a a renewal of our institutions rather than sort of a reversal to a bygone era. Mm -hmm. And I guess what the question I have is it's very tough for, for meaning and what matters to sort of rise up or organically. It's almost like the institution, a lot of the institutions that you've named, the family, the, the community, these sorts of things are religion are built up over generations and even centuries for that matter. And so how, how do we, how do we start from scratch on, or especially if we're t- talking in terms of a renewal rather than a reversal, help, help us unpack that. Yeah. A little bit. I think it's a great question. It raises a couple of important points. First of all, the distinction between renewal and reversal strikes me as really essential. So uh, the, the answer to the problems we face cannot be a going back to what we think of as some golden age of civil society or of uh, American confidence in institutions. It's certainly the case that Americans had much greater confidence in our institutions in the middle of the 20th century, after the enormous mobilizations of the two world wars and the depression. We emerged in the late 40s, early 50s, into the early 60s um, as a country with extraordinary confidence in its institutions, in some ways maybe too much confidence in big government, big business, big labor, being able to just manage things for the country. And over time, since then, we have lost that confidence gradually, and we've lost the sense uh, that that the kind of cohesion of that moment is who we are as Americans. We've become more individualistic, in some ways reverted to an American norm of greater individualism um, and therefore less social cohesion. But I think we've got to be careful about looking at that period of the 50s and early 60s 
as the norm that we should measure ourselves against or as something we could go back to. Uh, first of all, that period was not as great as we think we remember it was, right? Most of us are too mm-hmm. young to really remember it anyway. Um, and if you were not part of a pretty narrow elite segment of American life, that period was not so fantastic. Um, it, 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 it's, it's such an enormous part of how we understand ourselves because it was the time when the baby boomers were young and the baby boomers still exert an enormous influence over our self-understanding as Americans. Too and much. Yeah, too much. <laughs> yeah. And there's still the generation that governs us. Our president now is uh, in his mid-70s, so are the people running against him. Um, and, you know, the, the, that, that older baby boomer cohort has exercised a massive influence over American life for a very long time. So, you know, Donald Trump, for example, was born in, uh, in June of 1946. George W. Bush was born in July of 1946. Bill Clinton was born in August of 1946. And if you, if you walk down the list of leaders of our core institutions over the last 25 years, a huge number of them come from that instant, from that earliest moment of the baby boom. And their view of themselves defines our view of the country. I think we've, that's got to change. That can't be how we see ourselves. Among other things, it contributes to our thinking of America as an aged society, uh, as, a, as an aging baby boomer that's over the hill, which is just not true. We don't think about the future enough in our politics. And what's required to think about the future more is, I think, a sense that we require a renewal, not a return, but a renewal. And that means a recommitment to the core purposes of our institutions and the core ideals of our society. And in a forward-looking way, it requires us to build institutional affinities, to build institutional forms for dealing with new problems. Now, how you do that is not a simple matter, but I think we each do have some role to play. And ultimately, if we think about what can I as an individual do to help the country out of this social crisis that it's been in, I think that begins in a small way by asking the great unasked question of this moment in American life, which is given my role here, how should I behave? Given that I have this position, given that I am the principal of a school or, uh, a, 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 or, or a worker or an employer, uh, a, 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 a pastor or a congregant, a neighbor, a parent, given that, what's my responsibility in this situation? Not just what do I wanna do but what does my role call for? I would bet you that the people who most drive you crazy in American life right now are people who seem to fail to ask that question when they obviously should. As a president, as a member of Congress, what should I be doing in this situation? Uh, a lot of our leaders are failing to ask that kind of question. And the people who we most respect seem to know how to ask that question when they should. I think we ought to start by each trying to do that a little more and a little better than we have been. And then we need to think about institutional reforms in those places where we play a role. Yeah, I think that that is a question that doesn't even occur to a lot of, especially people younger than that baby boom generation. And either it's because Mm of the baby boom sort of anti-establishment, you know, they're all corrupt attitude and that our our own generation x cynicism and uh lack in beliefs of lack of belief in uh, sort of overriding ethics that used to be you know, people used to take seriously it, I, I think what you're what you're calling for co- requires us to all be a little more credulous and it and it could yeah. sound it could sound naive but i think that those virtues do exist and 
we need to maybe step back from our ironic detachment a little bit and say, yeah, yeah, there are, there are virtues. There are codes of ethics that we should live up to. And it changes based on what role you play. That's, that's a, it's, it's not a big thing to do, but it's also, it seems just like a, a big shift from the way most of us go about our, our daily work. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it can be a big thing to do if enough of us do it. Um, mm. And, you know, in individual situations, it can make an enormous difference, but uh, you're right. It's not what comes instinctively naturally to us now. Um, it does require a little bit more earnestness, a little bit less cynical distance, but honestly, I think people want that. I think a lot of us feel a need for that. It's, we almost feel silly saying it or doing it, but in fact, there's a real hunger for a that kind of earnest commitment, you might say devotion, uh, to take a religious term. We want something to be part of that really seems to be worth our while. And rather than complain about the absence of that, we need to just act in a different way to make it more possible for each of us to have access to it. I think that that is exactly right. I think people want it and they are embarrassed to talk about it because it makes them sound innocent or, or naive, yeah, right. but it, but it, it, it doesn't have to be. And I think that that's a great message to get across. Can I return to your discussion about how institutions provide uh, a role for us, a place, you know, responsibilities, obligations, as well as, uh, as rewards within, within the, the construct. I think it's fair to say that the orientation of many on the left is, is towards knocking down those, that very sort of hierarchical place mm -hmm. uh, role how do we address that disposition? Because the, the disposition to sort of tear down institutions, because it seems to me that the story of the of the progressive left since the 1960s is a story of tearing down, actively tearing down institutions. So yeah. it's it's almost like it's not just a lack of, of tr it's not just a loss of, of trustworthiness in terms of our institution, but it's also you have a, a half of the, let's say, talented or, you know, the thinkers uh, are aiming their, their fire directly at tearing these things down. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, in, in more recent years, there's also been a form of the right that's, t that's understood itself as being devoted to tearing down institutions mm -hmm. um, and to undermining our confidence in them. Uh, in that sense, this book is a very conservative book. It begins from the premise that human beings enter the world uh, broken or fallen or imperfect and need to be formed before we can be free. And that that formation is what institutions do. I think a lot of people on the left begin from the premise that human beings enter the world free and ready. Um, and you know, you might say perfect or perfectible and that they're then oppressed by institutions and kept from being free by outside forces so that the left wants our politics to liberate people from institutions. The right wants our politics to enable functional institutions to form us. And in that sense, this book definitely speaks from that conservative disposition, that kind of Burkean view that we need formation and therefore we need institutions. But I think that it's, it's capable of also speaking to people who don't necessarily begin from that view because it should be pretty apparent that given the condition of our society now, we badly need to strengthen some of our core institutions, to reform them in ways that make them more trustworthy and more functional. And that that work it, it can be a work of devotion to the future of our society that isn't just for conservative. But it's absolutely the case that there's a strain of the left that wants to view institutions as the enemy, 
um, that understands authenticity as as directness, as uh, non-mediation, and therefore sees institutions as inherently inauthentic and illegitimate. Um, and sure, in, in some important ways, uh, this book is is in tension or at war with that view. But I think that view is not all that prevalent. It's the view of an extreme form of the left. But most people in American life, who even who understand themselves to be progressives, I think are open to the argument that we need a society with greater confidence in, in its institutions and that that can only be achieved by making those institutions more trustworthy, more worthy of that confidence. Um, that, that's an argument that ought to appeal beyond the usual bounds of our politics, though certainly there are some people on the left who are just inherently going to be closed to it. Yeah, and I think I think you're you're right that there's a, a certainly a strain on the right that's against that too. I mean, it, you um, I think you talk in the book about how it sort of goes against the the Lockean view of the the individual being the start of everything. That yeah, this sort of prehistoric pre-society man as as you know the the perfect individual who only gives up his rights because you know of the, the reasons to get into society and to protect his rights. But I, it's like like you said about um families how they're they're pre-legal, pre, pre-everything, you know. We so I mean, there, there was no such situation really where we were just atomized individuals floating yeah. around. Exactly. I, I think there's a lot of value in the kinds of arguments that Locke brings to our understanding of society. But I'm a conservative and not a libertarian, and I think that ultimately the way to understand society is not a profoundly individualistic way, but something more of a traditionalist and communitarian way. Um, that understands us as social from the beginning. Well, so to follow on that, um, obviously there's more voices on the right. Patrick Deneen, you know, the first things folks mm-hmm. criticizing the free market, kind of pointing to that as the, as the culprit that's, that's degrading the family and other institutions. H- how do you view the interplay between the free market and an institutional renewal? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a two cheers for capitalism guy. I I am a great believer in the market system. I think it is um, the the best form of uh, economic system that the that the human race has ever devised. Uh, so that for that realm of life that is fundamentally economic, um, the market is the way to organize it. But that realm of life is not all of life, and I don't think the market is the way to think about everything. And there certainly are some tensions between the logic of the market and the way that I, as a conservative, think about society and about tradition and about uh, the the character of human life. That tension is just something we have to live with. You know, another part of being a conservative is to know that there are that that, that there are irreparable tensions in uh, in the nature of human life and human society. And yeah, there is a tension between the, the logic of the free market, which is highly individualistic um, and materialistic, uh, and the logic of uh, both traditional morality and uh, community-centered way of thinking about politics. And we just have to find a balance. Um, there are huge advantages to both, and what it is to be a conservative is to sustain a tense balance between them. So I, I don't think that Patrick Deneen is right to say that liberalism has failed. Um, I don't think that's true. I, I think he goes too far in viewing political life as just applied political theory, so that if there's a problem in the Lockean theory of society, then that problem just manifests itself in the life of a modern society. 
the fact is our theories, our ways of understanding ourselves have always been thinner and shallower than the reality of life in a free society. Um, mm-hmm. the, way we th- the way we theorize about political life in America is highly individualistic, mechanistic, um, and the way we actually live is very communitarian um, and very traditional. And there's just a tension between our theory and our practice. We've never had a theory that's quite up to explaining our society. And I don't think it makes sense to say that that means that we're doomed to just live out the, the worst excesses of our theories. I think it means that we're called on to find ways to balance the best of liberal theory with the best of, uh, of, of traditional morality and uh, the Western tradition. And we can do that. I mean, there's evidence in our own history of being able to do that. It means that there, the kinds of struggles we have now on the right between traditionalists and libertarians are not new at all. They've always defined the, the American right. They've always been part of what we're about. Um, and it's important to continue engaging in them now. But I think the idea that liberalism has ended or has failed or is failing um, isn't very persuasive. Yeah, and it, it, it does go to a point that you made and, and that Kyle is, uh, will, will often make, which is the task of conservatism is sort of do this, but not too much, you know, exactly. <laughs> and, and how do we have a theory that captures not too hot, not too cold, but just right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would say I, a few years ago, I, I wrote a book about Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine that tries to think through that, the lens of their debate about the differences between left and right. And one thing you finally do that is that the, the metaphors, the images that fill the, the thinking of Edmund Burke are metaphors of space, of room for people to thrive. And mm-hmm. the metaphors that fill the writings of Thomas Paine and of the kind of progenitors of the modern left are metaphors of motion, of progress, of moving forward. And I think conservatism is still much more about sustaining a space for people to live out their freedom. Um, and that that means sustaining a balance. It means trying to keep your society from leaning too far in any one direction so that sometimes that means we have to be very communitarian and traditionalist. Uh, and sometimes that means we have to lean on libertarianism and a certain kind of individualism in both cases to keep our society in balance and make it possible for another generation to make the most of its freedom. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's the struggle that we have. That's what we've been discussing since we started this podcast. And uh, we'll, and conservatives around the country and around the world will continue to discuss because it's there are no easy answers to that. But I think a lot of what you've given us to think about here leads us in the right direction. So, so in the last few minutes, um, let's, uh, let's pull this back to, to current events. How do you see the coronavirus outbreak affecting America's institutions, you know, large and small? And how, how will social distancing factor into the some of the problems you've described? How, how do you see this playing out? Yeah, it's an interesting question because what we're living through now is a kind of mobilization. And mobilization tends to strengthen institutions, at least temporarily. Um, it gives us a purpose. It gives us a sense that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. It, it tends to improve our trust in our institutions some at least during the mobilization. But what's odd about this mobilization is that it involves isolation, right? It requires Mm -hmm. us to be willing to separate ourselves from the rest of society. It's almost like we've finally found a question to which isolation is the answer. (laughs) Um, And 
the, the, the strange sorts of isolation that we've been living with as problems over the last few decades now, um, now have to be part of a solution for us. And so we're looking to social media to help keep us connected, where social media has been so much a part of the problem and the kind of alienation of American life in recent years. So I, I think it's very hard to say in the long run how this affects our attitudes toward our institutions. But in the near term, this kind of mobilization, this kind of emergency need to come together and do something as a society um, is likely to combat some of that alienation and isolation that people feel and to give us a sense that we have a purpose. But obviously, you don't want the purpose of your society to be defined by a great calamity. You want people to have access to that way of thinking and understanding themselves in normal times, in times when they can use that to, uh, to build their lives. And so I hope we learn something from this experience that stays with us about the importance of, uh, of hanging together, the importance of belonging to institutions. But of course, it's much too soon to say. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating just, juxtaposition in that on the one hand, these terrible tragedies have a, have a way of pulling people together. But yet in this case, we very literally cannot be pulled together. And yeah, so, staying you know, home maybe, for the common good is a strange thing. <laughs> yeah. It is strange and it's unprecedented. Bizarre. And you know, maybe this is maybe this is our pathway to find true, like upbeat and, and positive social relationships through through social media and through. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure uh, everyone, you know, the three of us have at least I've lived on conference calls uh, yeah. the last two weeks, and mm-hmm. I, I suspect that'll continue, you know, moving forward. But you know, and then and then my kids. Uh, doing the Marco Polo, you know, or FaceTime with uh, mm-hmm. with cousins and and my parents and, and, and grandparents, and so in some ways, you know, maybe we're actually f- fulfilling the dream of what social media can do to yeah. to bring humans together. I hope so. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank for you. I really appreciate this. It's a, a fascinating book, and uh, and we look forward to more. Now, I need to go back and read your your book on 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 Burke and Payne and. And I think you got a couple others, so I, I need to go back and do that. Well, thank you. Uh, good luck. Sell a lot of books. Listeners, buy the book. All right. <laughs> Thanks that's, a lot, guys. All right. That's thank it you. for you all of in. Catch us next time. Thanks.